what we are also trying to do here at ADN, try not to think about the audiences, like not to split it binary, technical, non-technical, because even technical can mean a lot. There can be people coming with different technologies, back and front end, uh, with different languages, and they also operate with sometimes very different terms and meanings, and they can uh, easily understand some concepts, but maybe have to spend more time with understanding other concepts. I know some technical writers are spending most of their time creating video tutorials, and this is also can be seen about like, technical writing. And uh, what I'm missing somehow at this point is that there is no maybe single industry standard of how a good API should look like. Mm. We, we, which is probably fine because we're all figuring out this ourselves. Hello and welcome to the API Resilience Podcast. Today's guest is Alexei Akimov. Am I saying your name right, Alexei? Uh, yes, yes. Cl Thank you. W why, don't, why don't you uh, say it so that people can hear how it's supposed to be said? Hello, everyone. My name is Alexei Akimov. Alexei. See how much better that was? He's the head of API at Aden, uh, based in Amsterdam, A-D-Y-E-N. And Alexei has a really diverse technical background. He's fo focused a lot on API design, uh, API strategy, developer portals, and everything else that leads to a great developer experience. We didn't hit the record button fast enough this time, as uh, is often our problem. But I already heard enough to know that this is going to be a really fantastic episode. And thank you, Alexei, for joining us. This is really exciting to have you on and to meet you. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for inviting. So we, we were joking that like Alexei is also part of the API Philosophers Club and uh, <laughs> think, thinking about how APIs are transforming <laughs> our businesses and uh, beyond just the technical stuff. And this is going to be a good one. So tell, tell, tell maybe a little bit more about where you're coming from, Alexei? Like, so how, how did you get started at Adyen? And how, how has your role been evolving? Like, and, I, and you've, you've recently, or fairly recently, you've moved in more of a management role, as far as I, I understood from, from what I've been following uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, maybe, maybe you can tell a little bit more about, yeah, what, what you've, how you've been evolving and, and what your background is. Thank you for introducing me. So originally I got uh, my software development education and started working uh, in that role. And then I switched to technical writing because I was fascinated by the idea that I can program and uh, also help other people understand how they can develop their programs and do the software development. And this was the reason why I joined Adyen four years ago. So I joined our documentation team as a technical writer working on our API documentation, but also thinking about different ways how we automate, how we build our systems um, that help us create better documentation and better developer experience. And the team um, was growing since then, and it's an amazing place to work. And at some point uh, last year, I was also realizing that I I'm spending so much time on API designs and API development, so I really wanted to focus more on that. And that's why I'm also uh, now having this role as a head of API at IDM. And it's a lot about um, coordination. It's a lot about getting things right done and uh, at the right moment. It's a lot about learning and uh, collaboration with other people, uh, product uh, technical stakeholders, business, trying to understand how our APIs should look like because APIs is the interface of our platform. This is what our customers deal with most of the times. And it's um, for the people that don't know, Adyen is, is one of the leading payment gateways in the world. I don't know what number you are, but you're a really big one. And you know, I, I see you in a lot of places being mentioned as, as one of the key payment gateways. And yeah, so, so basically, you know, you're an API business. Um, it, it can't be, get more API than, <laughs> than, than a payment gateway, I think. So it's, it's interesting to hear. So the, and basically what you described is that you have a kind of like a governance role right now then, or like you're part of a governance team, API governance team or something like that. Yeah, we do have an API governance team. Uh, it's more like cross-team group of people who are contributing to different parts of our API 
decisions and API strategy. We gather almost every week and uh, discuss different API design things that uh, we really like to talk about. And uh, you're absolutely right, Adian uh, is not a payment gateway, only is a payment processing platform. And we saw Microsoft, Netflix, Spotify, and a lot of big uh, enterprise uh, and mid-market businesses all over the world. So I would also say it's number one payment company in the world. Right. But yeah, if you look at the market valuation um, and uh, the progress that the company has made so far, I, I think it's a very interesting place to be in and to see the growth how this all is evolving. What's also interesting to know about Adyen is that this is an API first company. So because it's a payment platform, we already started back in 2006, thinking about how our customers will connect to us through APIs and everything is made around APIs. And I think the thing that really surprised me is how fast you're iterating on your APIs. Like I, I there was that conversation where we're talking about uh, the, pace, the pace of change, like you, you would imagine that this is, you know, or, you know, we figure this out once and then you're kind of done. But that's not, that's not at all <laughs> what I've heard, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I can hardly compare, but I, I also sometimes feel that we need to move faster. <laughs> Still faster. With more appetite. In, okay, let's do things in the right way. But of course, it's a big responsibility because uh, payments um, is a lot about um, resilience. Is a lot about stability and being able to provide a service. So, uh, with every change, we really need to make sure that it makes sense and that everybody who is using the API right now won't be affected unless they want to migrate. So, it's a big work going on every time we evolve our APIs. Can you talk about the the process that um, you engage your stakeholders with and or your customers when you? are working on evolving your APIs? Like what goes into uh, design and how do you um, make sure that you're delivering the right thing to the right people? We are trying uh, to adopt the design first methodology. Uh, and of course, uh, it's um, it has its pros and cons, right? So it's almost impossible to come up with a perfect design from the beginning. That's what we know. That's why agile software development is so popular nowadays. And this is one of the core principles at Adyen. Uh, we want to launch fast and iterate. When we have a business opportunity, when we have an idea, we want to be first to deliver to the market or have the fastest time to market. And then also from that, we will be able to see how it works, what kind of feedback we are receiving, what we want to move and how we will evolve. But then, of course, it's difficult because this also means from the API side that we want to make our API decisions faster. And uh, this means that we really focus a lot on consistency, how other parts of our APIs are behaving right now. And another side of consistency that uh, actually I realized also recently is that it's not only our API that we should be consistent with, it's also all the other APIs out there that uh, we should be consistent because these are all the expectations of developers who will be using these APIs. And uh, th this is what makes it easier or more difficult for them to understand uh, how your API should work or should behave. So in this case, of course, uh, we have um, sometimes to change our APIs and this can be a small change like renaming a field or this can be a, a more, more difficult change uh, and everything requires a new API version in our case, if it's a breaking change for a customer. How many versions are you um, supporting for your customers right now? So um, it, 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 it's not an easy question to answer because mm -hmm. we have multiple APIs with multiple versions. Uh, right. And um, in this case, I, I would say maybe around hundreds of versions. Uh, but wow. but also this means that uh, the APIs that uh, some customers are using and they at some point migrate to a new version and this is also work brought from their side and from our side how this can be done in the most efficient way. Um, what has the Corona crisis uh, meant for your business? How has it changed? So yeah, there are multiple aspects of the Corona crisis and how 
we were reacting to that. First of all, of course, we need to make sure that uh, it doesn't affect our work and our operations. So, and it was already, yeah, quite established in how we organize our work uh, because of uh, strict requirements and regulations. We are working in the financial industry and uh, we have a banking license. You can imagine how strict these requirements are. This means that our platform was already designed in a way that uh, it should be operating with um, having less impact on um, maybe uh, some uh, changes in uh, the presence of people in the office and uh, we were able to switch to work from home uh, quite uh, quickly because we have everything set up for, from, for that from the day one we joined Adyen. So uh, in addition to that, of course, we saw a great impact on our customers and some industries were hit a lot. And uh, we were trying to find ways how we can help them out because, of course, our customer base is quite diverse. And um, we can see that some industries are growing with their online business, but at the same time, there are uh, customers that are struggling. And uh, it's also in our best interest to help them. For example, uh, for some industries that had to close the um, brick and mortar stores and stop the point of sale offering, in our platform we already have a diverse offering which is called Unified Commerce, where uh, you can easily integrate with our uh, online payments or mobile payments and uh, implement uh, contactless delivery or any other new models and use cases that you were not able to do before or didn't think about before. And uh, we also saw great impact um, in some regions when, for example, before it took maybe months or years for organizations to transform their business and to go online. And uh, with this need, uh, it took maybe a few weeks uh, mm -hmm. just to deliver the same functionality and uh, who was the first one then uh, they want the like they were able to become more resilient. Hmm. So, so you, so basically, I think as as um, at the end as as a company being in the business that you are, uh, you're really at the heart of some of the resilience that companies needed to be able to stand back up after after all these changes happened and all these shockwaves went through the economy. You, I think you, you were also uh, in, the, in the show notes, you were talking about, or in, in our preparation, you were talking about how this is like a complex system and, and how uh, we are collectively like shaping what, what we are experiencing. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about like how you've seen that? Like what kind of adapt adaptations you've seen happening in the business or, or in some of your partner channels or something like that? So, um, yeah, Adyen is working um, in the payments industry. And, mm -hmm. of course, if you think about the impact of um, coronavirus, payments is an important part of that because it helps uh, us to operate, to deliver services, to help each other. It helps fundraising campaigns to still run and many, many other things. So I, I would say that's what we see and that's what... I feel can be also seen as a good contribution to overcoming this crisis. But at the same time, I, I think the picture is much bigger. And uh, that's why I'm very happy that you started the API Resilience podcast, because we talk about the importance of APIs, how in general APIs help the society to become more resilient. And of course, there are different ways uh, to see how we can evolve as a humanity and reach new levels of resilience. But what I see with the ubiquity of internet almost everywhere, and uh, then with the internet powered by APIs, nowadays it's super important for all the businesses to think about the API programs or to be connected with different API consumers because this helps the humanity become more resilient. And somehow, if you also imagine what could happen without internet and without APIs running around us, without mobile phones, without all the technology around us, what would happen in that situation if we would face a crisis like we have right now? I would say that the impact would be much worse. So somehow the humanity was already preparing, was already building uh, this around itself to 
help us overcome this crisis and maybe some future crises as well. Uh, and this uh, looks uh, really fascinating. So we should not miss this opportunity to continue with digital transformation and with uh, building the API world around us. This is the way to go. It's, um, we talked on the last show with, with Mike Amundsen. We talked about, I, I actually don't know if we, we said this out loud. So just, I just keep processing these conversations and I get new ideas because of them. Yeah. But one of the key things I think is happening is that we're shifting from isolated systems, like being, you know, it used to be a lot about individuals and individual companies, mm -hmm. and it's becoming more about community again and about interconnection mm -hmm. and how, how do, how do individuals and individual companies interconnect with each other to create a whole, uh, like a fabric of services that's going to be stronger. It's going to be able to adapt faster and, yeah. and, you know, come back after a big shock. It's, um, and I think that's super fascinating to see. And, and also, you know, to be like a good pat on the shoulder, like, you know, we're part of that. Yay. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I liked your analogy in one of the, I think, podcast episodes uh, when we think about the resilience of human body. So it's, uh, I would say, quite a resilient creature. But at the same time, we do still have our brain and our heart and this, uh, the part that we, if we don't have them, we cannot believe that it's a human anymore, right? Mm -hmm. But, but then uh, with uh, building a society around us, with uh, like operating all together, we build this resilience and that's why we coexist and help each other. And this, of course, means that um, with everything that we do to make this world more interconnected and uh, people in different parts of the world more connected and working together, different businesses, different organizations, uh, this all helps uh, to create a world where we can help each other faster and then just see the value of having each other on this planet. And this is also coming through APIs. So before we had Web uh, 1.0, right? So when it just all started, we started connecting the world and machines and it seemed very interesting. Then uh, we observed Web 2.0 to, to when we saw that something is shifting. A lot of people started contributing to the internet. Uh, we saw the rise of uh, social networks and everything. So a lot of content is all about collaboration. But now uh, we also see that um, a, a, a lot of things are changing here because uh, with, um, with the rise of new capabilities that are not linked to a physical location anymore. And this is what APIs are all about, at least to me. Mm -hmm. And I think, I, I think there, it's more than that. So yes, it's decoupling from the real world uh, and like in uh, making services available no matter where you are. Yeah. I, but I think it's also giving those interfaces to other people and letting them find new affordances that those interfaces allow for. Uh, so that you're like, you know, here's my data. What else can we do with this? And and then suddenly it was like, oh, actually people are doing this one thing. It's like, can you imagine that? And I think that that is the real power is, is because there's a lot of hidden value in our businesses that we're not aware of. And I think by, by parceling out capabilities and exposing them to the outside world, we allow other people to find new uses mm -hmm. for those capabilities. Mm -hmm. And it's very much how biology works. This is also how uh, bacteria work. Um, like, mm -hmm. you know, it's like massive problem, lots of bacteria die, lots of genes floating around, like some opportunistic pick up some genes and like start using it like, oh, look at this. It actually works and it does something interesting. And I think it's, that's, that's kind of like what's, what, um, what's going on uh, right now. It's like where we're going beyond individual companies. Yeah, I completely agree with you. With, with the, um, all the modern technology, with the internet around us, with uh, all, all the mobile phones and mobile cap capabilities around us, and also with people spending spending more of them like mental having more of them mental presence online we now invest more and more time into 
consuming different capabilities over the internet. But also this means that we are finding new different ways that probably the creators of these capabilities or the developers of these APIs would never imagine before. So, and this is quite interesting. And um, this also makes me think uh, uh, about an API, uh, every single API as a language, because the language is also something that evolves naturally and you can of course define its rules or try to describe the rules and um, teach a school and uh, try to come up with some dictionaries but they become outdated so quickly because of uh, the nature because everybody who is using the language uh, they also contribute to changing it mm -hmm. i'm super interested in the the language angle that you have because like mm -hmm. I think you, your background is is in linguistics also. We have some colleagues like that also. And I I got to think a lot more about language and how it's also a set of constraints that give us power over our environment, just like software constraints do that. And uh, there, there was this book, uh, Neither Ghost Nor Machine, uh, that talks about Terence Deacon's work. It's it's written by another author, but mm -hmm. it's about the work of this professor. That talks and one of the stories in that book is about how languages are co-evolving together with humans, and they, you know, a language needs to pass through the brains of children, and children need to learn a language, and if if either of them can't do do that, mm -hmm. uh, they both can't function properly, and it was super interesting that. Basically, language is kind of like an organism that's evolving together with us, and I think it's it's something similar. It's happening with with uh, information technology. Is that this? There's this um, programming languages are like that. APIs are to some extent like that. Uh, and it, there's there's a, a different way of thinking about all of this stuff that's connected to constraints. Uh, that that that's that's very very interesting. So I have an interesting anecdote that I I can um, share with you. And mm -hmm. uh, this story actually became a legend in my family. Mm -hmm. So imagine, uh, we live in Amsterdam and of course we have uh, guests coming over and one day I think uh, our, my in-laws were coming and we decided to go to the Van Gogh's museum, which is very popular here. And we took our kids with us and this museum is super nice, they have a very good exposition and they also have uh, headphones when you, you can uh, go to each masterpiece and listen to the story about this, how it was created, and how you can better understand what you see there. So my kids were so excited about that. Uh, they also, of course, uh, took the headphones, and uh, they also found that uh, you can translate it into Russian, which, which is much easier for them to use. So, And then uh, they've been in front of one of the famous paintings. I think it's called Seascape near Les Saint-Maurice de la Mer. Sorry if my French is not that good. Don't worry, Saint-Marie de la Mer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you for helping. So, and my other son, he was listening to the instruction in Russian. And because uh, on this painting, you see a lot of beautiful shades of blue. Um, so uh, Van Gogh decided to put his signature in red to give some contrast so you, you can see blue uh, with a different angle. And uh, w w what was suggested in that instruction, audio instruction, that you should like uh, close the signature with your hand uh, and then you will see a completely different picture. But what my son was doing, because it was an instruction, put your hand on, on a painting, so <gasps> literally touch the painting and you can imagine the security guard coming through the home, like trying to stop <laughs> and trying to understand what's going on. <laughs> but first, first of all, it's a legend because now uh, my son is the one who really touched the real Van Gogh's painting. <laughs> oh, <wow>. <laughs> <laughs> And, and then I think it's a, it's a perfect example of, of how um, different meanings can be put in different words. And I'm not sure what was the exact reason of that. It was it a poor translation into Russian. And of course, we can think about the age, so we can think about the different audience uh, that is consuming your information. But I think this is a perfect example of how uh, meanings uh, can be just uh, consumed differently from the same words, the same terminology. Yeah, and, and, and that's why I, I think uh, part of the good uh, developer documentation, part of good 
API design is, of course, always to think about the audience and the meanings uh, that you put in, 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 into what you want to say. And uh, what's even more interesting is that you need to think about the global audience nowadays and different connotations with different meanings. For example, I have Russian background and I see big difference uh, when we use World Wide Web and Internet because web is something created by spiders. So something, you know, negative with negative connotations, something that can catch you and you spend hours and hours uh, consuming information. So something that you would try to avoid. Mm. At the same time, internet, it's net, it's something human made for some reasons, right? And the third uh, version of this uh, in Russian language is just the word internet that was exported into the language as it is. So it doesn't have any connotation, it's a new word. And then you, when you talk about internet, it's a completely new meaning associated with that. This is how <laughs> other languages are consuming and evolving with that. And uh, this is also fascinating because then the technology brings so much into our life, into how we look at things and how we consume things. And I cannot imagine, like also one of the most popular favorite examples, I cannot imagine that 25 years ago, I would say, okay, I make a photo on my phone. I watch this video on my phone. I use maps on my phone. And now phone becomes something uh, that is part of your world. So almost everybody has phone and we consume a lot of information and we are present with our phones everywhere. But this also means that if we create some new experiences and capabilities that we expose with APIs, it might happen that the terminology that we are using in APIs also transition into the real world. And uh, it can mean really a lot how you name things if you also create new uh, names or new term for something, or you just start using something like a mouse that you had before now for something new and something different. So I think we will see more and more developments in that regard. Uh, and of course, we can try to control it somehow, like uh, in a famous George Orwell's book, 1984, mm -hmm. people were really thinking about the controlled language newspeak, where you can also just transition and evolve language into the way where some meanings completely disappear or some words change their meanings. Yeah, but, but, but in general, I, I, I think we should just be careful or maybe uh, have fun observing this evolution. So the, the fascinating thing for me is that meanings are discovered in words. And this is, this is a collective uh, endeavor. Uh, we as a society uh, find new meanings in the words that we already knew. We find new affordances in the words that we already knew that give us new powers over our environments because they allow us to express different concepts around us. And the more words that we learn and the more meanings that we learn and that we know that other people know, um, we can we can communicate these these new afford like through these new affordances. And it's something similar but on a different level that we're doing with with APIs in that uh, they are um, constraining the information or their constraint interface for transferring information that also transforms what we can do with in the information. And, um, and, and the, the, the amazing thing is that it's not the designer who decides what can be done with that interface. It's the consumer that decides and finds out what you can do with that interface. And you can find new, new ways of using that interface that, nobody thought was possible. Uh, and this is, this is a parallel that is there, right there with linguistics. It's, it's the exact same thing, uh, just in a different way. So I've, I've got to get a couple of things in. So thinking back to uh, your son uh, touching the Van Gogh, uh, <laughs> hey, that's amazing, and uh, he, should, he should get a T-shirt or something that says, hey, I touched the Van Gogh. Um, yeah. but, but it's um, it strikes me that... Um, there are always assumptions that mm. uh, we approach things with, and especially when we talk about APIs, and you were talking about uh, the need to be consistent, not only within your own APIs, but with the APIs that exist in the world and how they're formed and you know what people's mm. uh, expectations are. Uh, it, I think equally important is to figure out what assumptions you carry with you that you don't even think to express, but are important in understanding uh, what it is uh, you're trying to do. So 
if we think about the museum and you know not touching the painting you know that that's that's an assumption that gets expressed somewhere early on and you know it very well could be age related but you know it 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 becomes like a foundational thing that doesn't need to be said over and over but you know in this case, it's very easy to see how that could have happened. The the other thing that um, I, I'm thinking about is the difficulty of discovering uh, affordances. To, to Christoph's point, yes, I agree that that's possible. But if we think about language, there are certain things that just are not understood from one culture to another that make a culture a culture because their language doesn't have them. And a very non-culture specific example of this is that uh, linguists have determined that the name for the color blue, blue is one of the newest uh, of the major you know, colors, mm-hmm. and, and its name came into language much later. And likewise, cultures that don't have the word blue in the language don't recognize blue as a separate color. There are indigenous peoples that you can hold a blue and a green card in front of them and ask them, you know, to pick one that's different, or you give them three cards, two green and one blue, and they say they're all the same uh, because they, they just don't have blue in their, in their language. Um, there's a, a fantastic radio program on, uh, kind of scientific things and um, uh, it's called Radio Lab and it's produced, I think, by WNYC in uh, New York. And uh, this this blue example came from uh, their podcast on on colors, which is Hmm. a a really great episode. But it makes me think that there's there's, uh, certainly the opportunity to discover affordances, but we shouldn't assume that people will find what we expect them to find. We need to help them with that. We need to give them the language as much as possible. And it's also about transforming the receiver. It's, it's, a, it's a, like, you know, language and the people co-evolve. Your son is never going to do that again. He's, he's, he's learned this. It's now become part of his identity. It's part of the constraints that he's internalized. Uh, and that will change the way that he listens to that message that comes to him. So it's, um, I think that's maybe maybe an interesting area to to go. Like I, one of the things that one of the topics I always ask about is, or I try to always ask about is like, how do we democratize APIs and how do we uh, turn them into something that not only developers with their devel- developer perspective and their developer identity and their developer way of looking at the world are able to utilize to do things. Um, so, and it would be, would be interesting to hear what, what you've seen and, and how you're approaching this because you, you come from a very interesting, because you are a tech writer uh, or you've, you've had that identity and now like how, how you are thinking about that. Yeah. I think it's a very interesting topic. Uh, and maybe I also, of course, don't have an answer to that. Mm-hmm. But I have got some ideas. And uh, in general, documentation APIs, so the products that we create, the integration process in general, and all the communication is all about being able to understand each other. And uh, for everything that we can do in that regard, uh, this can help with democratizing, actually, the API consuming and also developer portals and of course there are initiatives like low code or no code that can help a lot at the same time what we are also trying to do here at ADM try not to think about the audiences like not to split it binary technical non-technical because even technical can mean a lot there can be people coming with different technologies back and front end uh, with different languages and they also operate with sometimes very different terms and meanings and they can uh, easily understand some concepts but maybe have to spend more time with understanding other concepts and uh, non-technical people business people they're also coming out from different background and they can be understanding maybe some technical concept but maybe to some extent and just be not aware of some other concept so in this case what we are trying to do we are trying to uh, always continue our research and uh, gathering feedback 
from people who are consuming our developer documentation, but also testing our API design decisions. We are organizing developer feedback sessions where we also invite people with different backgrounds, so with different experience, and hear what they think about our potential API design. This can help us improve a lot. Uh, the same goes for documentation. But also internally, we are trying to involve people from different departments, from different backgrounds to contribute to our documentation. And uh, this is made through, of course, uh, increasing the internal awareness that you can do this and, and actually encouraging people to contribute, but also with good support uh, by the tooling that we use for our documentation. This is done mostly with implementing the docs-like code approach uh, with markdown files in a Git repository and static website generator for that, and developers love to contribute this type of content. At the same time, we have a CMS on top of that that helps other people that are not familiar with markdown or Git flow or something else. They can just use a visual editor and write some content or propose a change, click, hit the save button, and then this becomes a pull request in our Git repository, and then the technical writer can review it. So by implementing this, and by encouraging internal people from different, with different expertise to contribute to docs, we also see that uh, it becomes better for different audiences, and yeah, just helps with democratizing it, I hope. Mm -hmm. Have you read um, docs like, wait, code like code and prose like prose from uh, Tom Johnson? Have you read that article or not yet? I've read a, a huge number of articles from Tom Johnson, but I don't remember this one. It's it's a it's a recent one. He okay. he basically he came back and said like like actually I'm we're seeing that we might need to take a little step back from the Doxus code approach. Uh, and I was like, whoa, Tom Johnson is saying that now. <laughs> that was, so it's a very very interesting article. It's yeah. um it's it's about authoring experience. And like what you, there was also interesting how you framed CMS, because uh, like on, on our product, we use the CMS as a publishing or we use our CMS as a publishing interface, not necessarily an authoring interface, um, but you're focusing on the authoring experience for Docs, like, you know, for Docs code artifacts. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's interesting to, to hear the difference. Mm -hmm. And I think I maybe understand where Tom is coming from. Also, I, mm -hmm. I, I should, of course, read his article and then come back to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, sorry. sorry. So, should have sent it to you. <laughs> maybe uh, up front. I, I, I think I remember when the whole Docs like code um, story has started. Because most of the uh, documentation communities were having uh, difficulties with adopting data kind of tooling mm. because it was it became too complicated, too difficult to maintain it, uh, required uh, too much things to be done, especially if you want to start fast and already have something published uh, for your new product, new API, new, new software. And that's why uh, Docs like Code became uh, so popular. But I do see the difficulty with adopting Markdown because Markdown doesn't have semantic decorations. It has only formatting decorations usually and requires some extra extensions uh, on top of that. Without that, it's difficult to maintain it in a, a detail-like way when you want to have some structures, when you want to use structured authoring mm -hmm. principles that are really good. And that's why I think something hybrid uh, that we're also trying to use here at Adyen when you use Markdown, but then you have shortcuts which can provide you some structure within Markdown files. For example, you have short description, you have different groups with mm -hmm. different bodies with decorated, and then you have your own elements, for example, navigational elements, like we have something like finger post that shows you different directions and allows you to go to different directions. I think the technical writer in this case should not write something like rectangle or button and instead mm. they should use uh, semantic meanings saying, okay, this is a finger post, this is direction one, direction two, direction three. And then the rendering mechanism should decide how this should be displayed, depending on the medium, if it's a web page, PDF, or something else. And uh, this is something that uh, really requires some good support by tooling and maybe also high adoption by the community. I'm not sure if it already exists or if it's evolving. I'm pretty sure it will uh, become more popular soon because there is a need for that. It's the same thing again. Where do you put the constraints? Do you put them in the people or in the tools? 
it's it's uh, it's like your son touching the painting. It's like yeah. like they had the constraints in the people. They were expecting people to know that you can't touch the painting, and it was not necessary to put the constraints in in the tool. But he didn't, and yeah. And I think that's that's that is the big question: is there is a bunch of learning that it will be necessary to go beyond those assumptions? And that, that, that's, that, that is, I think, the big challenge is like, from what point do you start and how far do you need to go back? And how do you not bore the people that already know the stuff? That's, yeah. that's the hard part. And uh, of course, um, it's difficult to be an expert in everything that you, mm. can, you can potentially do in your organization. And that's why now I think most of the organizations see that uh, developer experience is crucial for adopting their business, especially if they are in API business. And for example, we were doing um, some research, also asking our customers, so what's the most, what are the most important points uh, for them in terms of our APIs adoption? And documentation is always number one. Okay, you really need to have good documentation, and that's why I think every organization that cares about good uh, APIs and developer experience, they should also put more focus on building better developer portals. But this also means bringing right expertise to your organization, hiring technical writers, having DevOps, DocOps engineers, uh, doing some product design, product research, uh, developer advocates working all together on bringing these developer portals to life. I want to put this one in because one of my gripes is that, and, and we're a tool company, we build tools for a living. But one of my gripes with customers is, right, not, not a gripe with a customer, it's more one of my biggest cautions for customers is, all, is, is be very, very careful. Your tool will not solve your problem. Your tool is just a tool. You still have to do the work using that tool to solve your problem. You need both people doing the solving work and tools to help with the solving work. And I think, uh, and, and practically that often means that, hey, maybe you should hire a tech writer because, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you're, you're, um, you don't have any tech writers. You don't have any community managers. You don't have any developer relations. That's a problem. <laughs> the, 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 I think one of the problems that we see there, uh, just to amplify what you're saying, Christoph, is that people often see one dev portal versus another and they say, well, this is a much better dev portal. And to, to them, they think that what they, what they like about uh, dev portal B is that it's, a, it's more aesthetically pleasing, but it's usually um, not a matter of aesthetics. It may actually be that it's, it's actual form, it's actual design is actually presenting information to them so that things are much clearer. And so you can take a, a very good dev portal design and not have good content, and you've got a lousy dev portal. And you can also have very good content and that will make a bad dev portal better. But really the sweet spot is where you have really great content and it's well presented. Uh, so that it's that people can uh, quickly see and find what they're looking for. I think that the the key is we see different failure states. Uh, we see teams where where they're like, okay, I don't have time for this whole dev portal thing. Just solve my problem. Like you know, give me some technology that's going to ma magically make everything right. And like they don't have writers. They they don't have anything, and that's bad. The other is. I don't think I've ever seen like a company that's focusing too much on tech writers or like too much on content. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Probably when you start focusing on the people to do the job, they'll say like, okay, and you need to go and get us some tools to make, to, to help us to do this. And then the, 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 but what I, what I most often, what I often see is like, they've hired a whole dev portal team. They've got like, 10 people on the job, there's no single tech writer. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Like, no, 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 this is not going to work. You're going to build a dev portal from scratch. You're going to spend an enormous amount of money. 
and you're not going to have any content. <laughs> like, then it's better, you know, take something off the shelf or work with a product or something. Just focus on the content first. Yeah. I think that's the key. Yeah, it's interesting to see how it's happening and how it's different from organization to organization. And obviously, you've seen a lot. Uh, and w w what I also should admit that the role of technical writing and perception of technical writing has been really greatly changing over the last decades. So, and that's why maybe some organizations think that it's only about the, applying the style guide and mm -hmm. uh, fixing all the commas and dots and full stops and, and that's it. Uh, but of course, it's a lot about understanding. It's a lot about uh, composing this content all together. It's a lot about collaboration and drafting and drafting and drafting and changing and maintaining and being responsible for that. And if you try to put this on someone else's shoulders, so probably it would never be pretty high in the list of their priority because if developers need to write code, of course, they can contribute to documentation. They understand the product well, but of course, uh, there will be other challenges because they understand how the product is built, not maybe how they should be used. If you try to involve other people, they will contribute their part, but there should be somebody who is really feeling attached to this, responsible for making high quality, and usually technical writers, professional technical writers, can do the job uh, pretty well. Yeah, technical writers are like the translators. That's, yeah. That make do like a gut check. Are you communicating well? And yeah, yeah. And of course, technical writing in different organizations can be very different again. Yeah. So it really depends on how you you built it, where your technical writing team belongs to, how it operates with marketing, with developers, uh, with product, with other sites. And also, it really depends on your product, who is using this, who is consuming this, what kind of documentation you need. I know some technical writers are spending most of their time creating video tutorials, and this is also can be seen about like, technical writing. And some technical writers are really focused only on API descriptions or code examples. But at the same time, there are a lot of different types of content that you would need to create, and it's also can be seen as technical right you know somewhere in between different roles that you have in your organization it, it strikes me that so much of it comes back to the actual api design as to the role of the technical writer the better the api design <laughs> i think the easier the technical writer's job is because uh, to, to your point about um you know, the technical writer is is translator and produces lots of different types of content. They're, they're, they're able to move from, you know, reference documentation, which everybody needs, to more conceptual documentation and more enablement instead of, um, you know, making the developer do the, the heavy lifting to uh, build all of those bridges that need to be built. So, I really like the idea of technical writers being involved in the API design process, because uh, if it's something becomes really difficult to document or to explain, maybe this is not only the problem with the documentation. Maybe there are some other things that we should improve before uh, going live with this product. And uh, I also know some examples and some organizations that even start with writing a draft documentation page before coding uh, the actual API design because it helps you understand the use cases or the possible uh, terminology or, or the possible capabilities. Uh, and this is also where technical writers should be involved uh, as early in the process as possible. So in that sense, I, I would say if some organizations uh, want to build good developer portals, they should, of course, uh, really wait in how technical writers should be involved in, in the whole process of creating uh, the software products as well, because this will affect uh, the resulting content on the developer portal. I've been involved in um, agile development from very early, before, before it was called agile, I think, and one of the things that whenever the Agile Manifesto came out, I, I was really excited about it because 
you know, it, it communicated so clearly what we were trying to do. But a lot of uh, people, especially, uh, uh, you know, the technical uh, writers looked at that and they felt, uh, you know, attacked by it. And it, it strikes me that um, uh, what was being talked about in the manifesto wasn't really the technical writing. It was the writing that happens in the waterfall process. It, it was uh, the the design documentation, uh, the specification that was uh, not as important as the actual communication around the business problem. And so to, to me, um, in, in the design, you know, starting with uh, technical writing is, you know, perfectly consistent with agility because it's, it's trying to enhance that communication. Whereas if you start with the code, you end up with a solution looking for the problem to solve instead of starting with uh, really trying to understand the business problem that you've got and communicate about it. And uh, when you have the business people and the technical people together on the same page there, you're going to get something better. And um, so I I love the way you're thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a very good observation. And uh, I know also now a lot of companies are talking about API design first approach when mm-hmm. before implementing an API you actually really think about the design and use tools like Stoplight or Swagger Hub or Postman to collaboratively discuss what should be in your APIs, how they should all look like, then you can also immediately generate tests and server mocks and go with that. So it sounds uh, like a very beautiful approach and of course um, I think there are a lot of process of implementing this, but also it sounds a little bit waterfally, and mm. uh, that's why probably uh, it doesn't get a lot of traction in all the business cases. Uh, and maybe if you think about that, uh, there are parts of your software when you still really need to build a, like a huge amount of your system and make architectural decisions when uh, you need to move in an agile way. Uh, you don't need to think about documentation because it will never be consumed by somebody outside of your organization. But obviously there are parts of your system. Uh, it can be some UI that requires visual design, right? And interaction design, or it can be an API design or some maybe other different parts uh, that you need to know from the beginning, from the get-go, what you will be building, right? And in this case, I, I think it still makes sense to spend a little bit more time on designing this, on discussing this, because otherwise you will need to change afterwards. Changing the UI is quite um, dramatical because people will need to adjust to new design patterns, but uh, still with the proper help and with proper transition, you can do this. Changing API sometimes becomes even more difficult, especially if it's already running on someone's platform and processing, uh, I don't know, millions of euros in volume. So sometimes it's almost impossible. Uh, so that's why in this case, I would really focus on uh, thinking a little bit more in a waterfall model with a technical writing mindset and, and mm. implementing this. I think there's another way of looking at it though, is that I, I loved, uh, we had this uh, talk from Jenny Wanger in Chicago a couple of, like a couple of years ago, or, or, or I don't know, it's a year ago or? I'm kind of vague on time with Corona. It's, uh, it's decades ago. <laughs> the, but, um, and she had to talk the UX of DX. And I think the correct way of looking at API design and on creating your spec first is as a research phase. And UX is trending. Everybody's doing UX right now. Possibly because actually... It's filling. It's stepping in that gap that was created by this misinterpretation of the Agile Manifesto. That oh, we don't need to do design anymore. We can just do whatever we want and just get started. And and then now we we often end up like actually maybe we should think about this a little bit more. 
and I, I maybe that's that's what's going on is that actually UX is a is a as a movement is a result of this gap that was created by like this overbalancing uh, after the waterfall. You know, it's always a, a pendulum swinging from left to right. Uh, pro- probably it's something like that. Yeah. I think that I, I don't I don't see that uh, what we're talking about is really an agile versus waterfall thing. It's really about communication and um, and trying to understand the business problem. And so if you look at the Agile Manifesto and what agility uh, was about, it was about putting business people and technical people together to communicate. And uh, I don't remember who said it, but the, the highest level of communication are, are two people in front of a whiteboard. And, um, you know, it, it's not passing a, a document back and forth. The document, to me, uh, is, I've always thought of documentation as um, kind of the fallback whenever you're communicating in a space where you, you're, you're not uh, in, in, in the same time as, as the other person. So, so you, you write the documentation because it's going to be consumed by someone else, uh, some other place, some other time. Otherwise, the best communication is between two people um, speaking or, you know, in front of a whiteboard. So it's not that I think that these things are in conflict. It's, it's really about focusing on the user and understanding the business problem. And whenever we talk about API first and the importance of uh, API design, I think what we're really talking about is uh, being user-centric and valuing the developer as a as a person and you know understanding that their experience with your product can be the thing that makes your product successful or fail you can have the best technology and if it's uh if it's you've got too much friction uh, around using it it's not going to be widely adopted and um at least it, that's the way that's the way I'm thinking about it. I think it's the dynamic versus static constraints thing, where, like in a living cell, there's the static constraints, there's the, the hormonal receptors on the outside. You don't change those because if you change those, nothing works anymore. But the like the uh, the proteins that are in the cell, they're constantly changing. They're, they're, but there are constraints. They're constraining the processes that are able to happen in the cell, but they're dynamically changing constantly. And I think the key thing is what Agile understood is that software needs to be dynamically constrained based on the needs of the moment and the needs of the organism. And if you make a static constraint as like the new goal that needs to be fulfilled no matter what, then you end up doing the wrong thing because by the time that you implemented the specification, the world has already changed and you're, you're, you know, you're going towards the wrong direction. And it's the interplay between these two, between the dynamic and the static constraints that gives you an adaptive organism. So in the static constraints, I think APIs need to be static constraints because they're on the outside and they help us to communicate with, with the outside world or like between cells. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the way you implement it that's up for grabs. That's what's happening on the inside. Yeah, I, I think you both made really great points. And uh, Agile Manifesto is, of course, a lot about removing bureaucracy and uh, making things static when you create a software product because everybody wants to move fast. Uh, and uh, in that sense, I, I think it, it also it's a valid point that we should all think more about users and, in our case, if you talk about APIs, it's a developer, uh, so developer experience and developer expectations become really important. And uh, what I'm missing somehow at this point is that there is no maybe single industry standard of uh, how a good API should look like, mm. which is probably fine because we are all figuring out this uh, ourselves. But even with the evolution of the open API standard, so there is no single um, version that can describe all, all the different kinds of APIs that you're building. It's uh, very hard to come to a situation when you know exactly how your API should look like and what are the expectations. Of course, we have REST 
been involved a lot in the I think last two decades we have GraphQL coming and we have new initiatives like a Sync API trying to prove the point that REST is not suitable for everything and for everybody. And we have a lot of other initiatives, but still I think we should, um, as an API community, think more how we can come to a point uh, where it's more clear for everybody what a good API is, not only in terms of naming, but also in terms of expected behavior, I don't know, expected design patterns and things like that. I re really like the progress that OpenAPI uh, community made recently with introducing the new version, OpenAPI 3.1, where we removed a lot of obstacles and divergence with the JSON schema. So I think it's a great step forward, but still it's taken a lot of time to come up with a new standard, but also for all the tooling to deprecate old versions. So um, it, it will take time. At the same time, there are things like a single API uh, that are developing their own API description format, which uh, makes the complex more diverse, but also more difficult to consume and to come up with a single standard. So mm -hmm. I, I think ideally a single API should maybe contribute to the open API standard. And it's really fascinating that Postman recently joined this initiative as well. So uh, very curious to see what will be going on there. I think they're they're standards for different purposes, and this the same with with GraphQL. It's also like very different purpose. It's so I think there's probably a place for all of them, or for some diversity in landscape. Yeah. So I, I think Stan Knemek, he did this talk a while ago, where he was like, "No, you don't have to re rebuild everything in REST. Like, if you have a CSV API, like that just you know, you go to your URL and you get a CSV mm -hmm. and it works and fulfills your needs. That's enough. That's good. If you have a REST API or a SOAP API, even SOAP that's being hated on so much, if it fulfills its function, then, you know, then it's okay. Yeah. I, I agree with this point, but to some extent, because um, it's all about making sure that your APIs are easy to consume. And this yes. builds on the expertise uh, so that uh, your API consumers have. If uh, on the daily basis they integrate mostly with REST APIs, they would definitely have difficulties with understanding how your uh, SOAP API works or CSV API works. Or they will see your APIs as being old school and then also this will give some assumptions about your technology that it's been legacy, not mm -hmm. performing well, while it's not always the case, right? So there are different standards for, for different tools. But the same comes to, for example, visual design of your developer portal. If someone comes there and they feel that it's difficult to use, difficult to navigate, they have a feeling that it's maybe uh, something created 20 years ago and never updated after that. <laughs> well, again, the content can be brilliant there. That's why I, I think all the components are quite important here. And if there are new trends and new expectations and new learnings that uh, your API consumers have in mind, you should prepare your product and API as part of that to operate in a way which is easier for them to understand. Because if, if they're familiar with this, they will definitely integrate faster. I, I just want to make sure that uh, people don't think that uh, we're encouraging them not to use soap during the time of Corona. Um, um, please do not deprecate soap right now. We need soap. Soap is alive. Soap is everywhere. This was a really fascinating talk. And I, I feel like we just uh, keep getting uh, so lucky with uh, having people with great insights that want to share and also people who are so nice. So Thank you for being both and um, and joining us today and sharing your experience with us and our audience. Thanks for paying it forward. Thank you very much for inviting me today. I'm a big fan of your podcast and of everything that you do. Please continue sharing these thoughts and uh, contributing to the development of the API society. I really believe that APIs or the overall technology will help us become more interconnected, will help us uh, see different parts of the world without uh, being present there 
physically will help us with many, many, many new things in the next uh, couple of decades. And that's why I, I, I really ask everybody to think about uh, developing API programs and uh, contributing more to different API initiatives and think more how APIs are evolving because one day you create something and then it can happen that everybody is using this new term and this new product that you created with your API. And then this is your responsibility, how you name it. Naming mm -hmm. is important. And a hard. Naming is hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the worst at naming. That's all for today, folks. Um, thank you for joining us for another really interesting episode of API Resilience. Maybe we should call it the API Philosophy Podcast or something. Um, <laughs> thank you, Alexei. For, if you want to find out more about Alexei and the work that he's been up to, you can look him up on LinkedIn. And um, yeah, there, there's not too many Alexei Akimovs out there, I think. Uh, and if, if you look for, uh, at Adyen, you'll find him there. Uh, and he's also got a couple of interesting talks up uh, on a couple of conferences. So um, yeah. And thank, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the API Resilience Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please follow us to hear our latest episodes on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And if you have any comments or feedback you would like to share, please drop us an email at podcasts at Until next time, we wish you well and hope you find success in all your endeavors. Thank <laughs> you.